Hey everybody, welcome to Artist Soapbox. Artist Soapbox is a podcast featuring triangle area artists talking about their work, their plans, their manifestos. I am your host, Tamara Kassane. Have you met the Poetry Fox? I have, and I'm a fan. In this episode, I'm speaking with the human behind the fox, Chris Vitiello. Chris Vitiello is a writer, performer, critic, and independent curator based in Durham, North Carolina. His poetry books include Obedience, Irresponsibility, and Nouns Swarm a Verb. He is a chief contributor at Indie Week. The Dorothea and Leo Rabkin Foundation recently recognized his art criticism with their inaugural Rabkin Prize for Arts Journalism. Chris frequently stages performances and arts events in the North Carolina Triangle. He has organized exhibitions for the Carrick, the Click Photography Festival, and the Ackland Art Museum at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. And of course, Chris Vitiello is the Poetry Fox, a giant fox who bangs out custom on-demand poems on vintage typewriters. During our conversation, you'll hear Chris share his experiences as a performance writer for The Poetry Fox and The Worry Cabinet. You'll hear him speak about audience and connection and writing as that connective conduit. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Chris. Thank you so much for this conversation today. Thank you for asking me to have a conversation today. I've been lonely here in our you know, self-quarantining for, for human contact. And th- this is what we get now for human contact. <laughs> it is really nice to hear familiar voices or at least friendly voices in this way. I found these conversations to be really sustaining, even though I am in a house full of people and it's quite noisy. It's very nice to talk to some grown-ups who are, you know, are creative individuals and still invested in making work. So I appreciate it. All right. When I sent you an email asking for this interview, in your reply, you mentioned that you were just generally interested in talking about writing and performance and audience and connection. And I think all of those are just right on point for what we need to be talking about these days. But before we get into the meat of that, I'm wondering if you could talk about some of the projects that you are working on right now, just to give listeners some context. I'm a projects person. I always have a lot of things ongoing, and I'm also the type of person who sort of starts a project and then sets it aside for six years and then picks it up again like I stopped yesterday. So that that's this kind of a mode of working that's very comfortable for me. But right now, the big projects on my plate are, are I mean, the biggest is being the poetry fox. And, you know, I've been really devoted for the last two years to try to grow that into a full-time employment type of thing for myself and have, have was getting close here mm-hmm. for our our major global hiatus but that that is uh that's a wonderful performance i get to i get to write for people on a typewriter uh, on demand poems for lots of people in in lots of different kinds of events so that's been a big project and i've just been kind of growing that and seeing what spaces i can take that into and I haven't whiffed yet. I'm very happy with how that performance has been going on. So I am familiar with the Poetry Fox. I love the Poetry Fox. And I'm just going to interject here with some questions about this. So you wear the Poetry Fox suit and you type poems on demand on a typewriter for people. And 
you don't do like eight of these. You could do a hundred. How many, what is the greatest number of poems that you have generated at any given event? My largest number of poems in one sitting is 117. 117? Yes. <laughs> Which seems crazy to me, but there it is. You know, It was at a wedding reception and I was writing for six hours solid at this crazy, hilarious wedding reception. So, How does this work for you in practice? So people come and they give you a word and you generate a poem. How does the poem come to you? Is it a feeling or do you just write and the words come out your fingers? What is that moment like? Yeah. I mean, somebody comes up to me and they're a little, their guard is down a little bit because I am sitting there in a giant fox mascot outfit in front of a manual typewriter. And it's weird. It's a weird thing, you know? So people don't really know exactly what to expect. They don't know if this is going to be stupid or goofy or serious. They're, they're like, what exactly is going to happen here? And I think that people's guard, they drop their guard and I sort of see people a little bit when they're standing in front of me and I hear their voice and we have a, a small interaction. I ask them for a word that could go in the poem and they usually think for a minute and then give me a word or they've thought of one. They've been in line and have seen me write poems for two or three people before. And then I just immediately, I used to have a rule where I would say I have to start the poem within five seconds, but I just immediately, I, it's one second now. And I just go, um, you know, there's just like, the first line that comes into my head is down on the page. And then I have that to continue. You know, it's like, what comes after that? How do I work this word in? What kind of a person is this? And, and that's where the style of the poem or the tone of it or the shape of it on the page really comes into play. It's a surprising amount of information when you first meet somebody. You know, it's, it's not just a word and then I have to come up with an idea. There, there's a ton of information that I gather just from that little interaction and that goes into the poem. But, you know, usually I sort of get into the middle of the poem and then I figure out how to make it good, uh, you know, <laughs> and then I then while it's being good in the middle of the poem, I figure out a direction to take to sort of come to a, a point of closure. So, yeah, I mean, it, it happens really, really fast, but I've written 25,000 plus Poetry Fox poems. You know, it's like I know how to do a Poetry Fox poem. So, there isn't a ton of decision making. It's just, well, I guess it's all decision making, you know? I mean, it's like thinking has been reduced to just decision, 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 and the next line and the next line and the next line. So it does happen really fast and it is considered and original, but it's not, there's not a lot of, you know, mulling or weighing a choice or th trying to go back. It's just, you, you can only go forward. Feels a little bit like an artistic leap of faith for both you and the person giving you the word, because you're not second guessing yourself, you're just moving forward. And there is a certainty that in a small amount of time, you will finish a poem, and that will be something that they will walk away with. It's such an interesting exercise in producing work with some level of confidence that I think most writers don't have. I do have a lot of confidence, but I think it's a bit of the the sort of confidence of the idiot in a way, you know, like not knowing enough to not be confident about it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's just a sort of a decision up front that I'm going to do this, you know, and go and then just go forward with it. There aren't moments where I'm thinking, is this good? Is this person going to like this? I, those questions are just not a part of this performance. It's more like being really suggestible and 
getting the words onto the page and seeing them and, and having a, you know, thinking, Oh, I, I know, I know the next line. I know the line after this. Oh, I know I can rhyme something on this and that'll sound good. You know, just like it's a lot of sort of excitement and enthusiasm and very high energy, like a hyper stimulated state. So I think if people have been in that kind of hyper stimulated state making art, it's not a matter of confidence. It's more just being really excited about accelerating, you know, moving fast kind of takes care of almost everything. I love that explanation. I also find it really charming and true that sometimes weird makes things more accessible. You think it would work the opposite way, but I do think that when people are confronted with something that is surprising in that way, it almost brings us back to, well, I'll speak for myself. It brings me back to my child outlook on the world as being a place of wonder and delight. I've seen you work at the Duke University Hospital, which is not a place of delight for most people. And yet still, I saw adults who were waiting in line to receive a poem from you. And they were just, there was a lightness to that experience and an emotional openness that I don't often witness from adults. I think it's wonderful. It's a state that I don't get to be in a lot in regular life. And I think that one of the reasons that the Poetry Fox kind of happened for me, I, I think I've kind of wanted to be the Poetry Fox since I was a kid. I love working fast. I love writing a ton of stuff and seeing what, what comes out. And I'm not trying to write something that's going to end up in an anthology and be read 500 years from now. I really don't care. <laughs> you know, <laughs> It's not like I don't want to be good at it. I just, I'm just like, whatever, let's just do some writing. You know, let's, let's concentrate on right now. And writing on demand is all about being in this exact moment of making work for somebody who's standing right in front of you. And it's just kind of coalesced into this, into this really wonderful thing. It's more fun for me on the writer side than I think it is for people on the getting a poem side. But it is a, it's a moment where you get to be generous to exactly one person. You know, you're not performing before a room, a darkened room of, of a couple hundred people who you're not even going to meet. I get to meet and have a substantial and sometimes really emotional interaction with a bunch of different individual people, one after the other. It's kind of terrific. When you write for six hours, like you did for that wedding reception, do you need to gear up for it and then recover for like 48 hours? How does, how does your pre and post performance go for the Poetry Fox? I don't need to gear up for it. You know, I need to be hydrated because <laughs> I sweat a lot. <laughs> in the fox costume. And I need to have a lot of, you know, for six hours, there are going to be Gatorades consumed. But afterwards, it has been a process over over the years. I mean, you are a an experienced stage performer, and you really know a lot about the preparation before and, and coming down after. I really didn't know anything about that. And I was having trouble after a Poetry Fox gig like readjusting into my regular self. And it was kind of, I was just, would feel really sad. It would be a huge down afterwards. And so I do kind of have a little bit of a process after, after I finish a gig, I sort of find a way to sit by myself and just think back over a few of the key interactions that I had with people. A lot of the time people will cry when I read them a poem. And 
it's not really because the poem is some great work. It's because they were ready to cry. They've been ready to cry for weeks, probably, over something. And and the poem was a little bit of an entrance for them to be able to let let some tears loose, you know, let that emotion come all the way up to their face and hands. And I love it when you know, when I get to be a part of a moment like that and when a poem gets to gets to be a part of a moment like that. But I was having trouble after performances because it would I would feel a little haunted by that, you know. But I guess that where I've gotten is is just to sort of step lightly and just kind of like I'm trying to be the ghost. So they they aren't the ghost. You know, I can just sort of flit into a situation and be a part of a poet and a poem and and a person and some tears and then I can just kind of you know move out of that situation that happened I was a part of it now I'm not a part of it so I said to figure out how to leave those interactions to just try to let them be for me the coming down from a performance has been the trickiest <laughs> thing to navigate about the whole experience. It used to be for me that I would get so nervous before going on stage that I was almost paralyzed with fear. And then I worked that out. But it's taken me even longer to come down on the other side and realize that I need to have not a full-blown ritual of closure, but something to close out that experience, to recognize that it happened, to recognize that it triggered some emotions in me, to remind myself who I actually really am, especially if I'm playing a character who is going through something traumatic or or is not a very nice person. I need to kind of reroute myself in myself and walk back into my regular life. I didn't do that for a long time. And I think as a result, the people around me, the people in my family were unhappy and confused <laughs> about why I was acting so strangely. And it doesn't take a lot for me, but it definitely takes something, not just being like, all right, well, that was a thing, you know, and also not being able to sleep. That's for me, the hardest part when I come down, when I come home from a show, a performance in particular, then I'm just so awake. I have so much adrenaline going for several hours and then trying to calm myself en enough to go to sleep has been a challenge for me. Yeah. I think there's, there's just like a, a serious deceleration that has to happen inside my brain. I know people will ask me a lot of the time, don't you get tired? And I don't. Uh, and it's really because it's not like I'm running, you know, where you're actually consuming a resource inside your body that can be exhausted. You know, it's thinking. And I could do that for I mean our brains just do that anyway, you know. <laughs> like I could 6 hours is is an hour and a half whatever. It's just let's let's write all the poems, you know. And I mean there is some physical toll to it, but I generally am not paying attention to that while I'm working because I'm really seriously inside that fast brain space. But then afterwards, I, I have to decelerate. You know, what will happen sometimes is I'll do a gig and then I'll be meeting a friend for dinner or for a drink right afterwards and I'll leave right from the gig. And then like, I can't, I have right. to have a good 20 minutes <laughs> where I can actually kind of settle into moving at the rate that humans move when they interact with each other. So it does take some time to just not apply the brakes so much as just just pull the foot off the gas and just let the regular friction of life slow you down to the to the speed that everybody else is traveling at. Right, because you had to accelerate to kind of reach that pitch and then the opposite has to occur. Also, it's because 
this is the thinking that we want to do. It doesn't feel exhausting because this is the sweet space for me, at least. This is where I want to reside all the time. It's a certain kind of drug-like experience. If I had to spend an hour and a half doing algebraic equations, I would feel exhausted and bored. But if I'm going to be working on a project that feels really wonderful and juicy for me for that amount of time, I'm not tired at all. I feel so wired and ready to go. And so it really depends on what kind of thinking we're engaged in. No, absolutely. Earlier, you talked about being in a headspace that you remember when you were a kid. I feel very much like, I mean, I'm still me, but I'm also. You know, I'm also an, a nine year old me getting all revved up reading a book that is really terrific or something like that. The excitement that you get as a child when you really completely engage in fantasy or and just like playing is really fun. There's a reason that you always want to be playing and you don't want to go to school. The playing is really stimulating and, and you're like creating and experiencing all in the same flow somehow. And that I think is, is probably the thing that we're talking about. I mean, a lot of people will use the word flow in that, but to me, it's like, you're not alternating between all the different things. They're all happening in this one sort of uninterrupted various flow all at the same time. So yeah, it's like all the things that you've been using to distract yourself from that and to stop that in order to do things like get the laundry done or get somebody into the car to get them to school on time or something like that. Like those can be wonderful things, but you aren't getting into the stimulated creative right. flow, you know, <laughs> when you're, when you're checking out at the Harris Teeter or something like that. Maybe some people are, I'm jealous of them, but uh, yeah, yeah. That's why, that's why we, um we sort of hurry through those types of tasks in order to enable these stretches of a performance where we can really go into that and do it. And, and that's why you're a special performer. You know, I mean, I've been knocked out repeatedly because you absolutely transform into a character on a stage. And like, I can't imagine that. I, I really can't even wrap my mind around how one does that. I've instead crafted a performance where I get to be me, but without any breaks, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like just let's, let's just hurdle <laughs> down the hill of forward moving time and make poems. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. That's very kind. I want to go back to something that you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation about how you sometimes let projects sit for even a period of years. Why does that work for you? And how do you decide when it's time to let something rest or you're ready to come back? You know, I think I've recognized it as the fact that all of the projects are really just one, are just different manifestations of the same project. You know, I just think of it as the work. I like to work. I always like to be working. And sometimes I'll get distracted by some new medium or some new machine or something like that. I work in a lot of different media um, not just writing. Yeah, I think I think that a project can sit because a lot of the mind work is still going on, even if you aren't manipulating the medium with your hands during those years. There's a project that has that I had like worked up in notebooks. I kind of had the final picture of it in my head for many years that I've really brought into reality over the past year called the Worry Cabinet. And it kind of comes from a long fascination with 
well, two things, the sort of Victorian fortune teller cabinets, not like the ones with, with Zoltar with a, with a crystal ball in them, but these things that look more like a, like an upright piano where you, you put a coin in and put your hand on it and it spits out a card or a sheet of paper with, with your fortune on it, you know, and it usually vibrates or something like that, or has some type of sound element. I think those things are great. And then also confessionals in churches. I just, the architecture of the confessional and the idea that there's this box that when you go into it, you're in this religious space <laughs> is really pretty fascinating to me. <laughs> you know, um, And not, not, not having grown up in a religious family, I'm like, so that's like a God box. Like what? <laughs> Really? Are you serious? That's hilarious. <laughs> it's just, I mean, and they're so ornate and beautiful. So, so I, I love these two things. And for a long time, I would just sort of be writing in notebooks and, and drawing pictures of an object that I wanted to create. And uh, finally, about a year and a half ago, I created this worry cabinet. It's basically a large armoire, like dark wood, very beautiful and, and with some ornateness that I sit inside with a typewriter. And you come up to the worry cabinet and there's a little shelf with some cards and you write a worry on a card, uh, something that you're worried about, and you drop it through a slot. And then on the inside, I take the card and really fast write a tiny poem response on the back of the card and send it back out to you. And during the time of the writing of the poem, which is less than a minute, there's a there's like a mannequin hand sticking off the front of the cabinet that you're supposed to hold hands with. Um, <laughs> until the card comes out. And there's like a sound component to it too, but but it's like it's a project that I always wanted to get around to creating the actual cabinet. But I sort of continued working on it, you know, I was always thinking about it. I had a picture of it in my mind of what exactly I wanted to make, but I just didn't have the space to bring a giant cabinet into my living space and do a bunch of construction work on it. I didn't have the time to do it, you know. So it waited and waited and waited, and then eventually, I really just was ready to ready to do it. So now I have this massive cabinet. <laughs> How are you going to transport it? At the moment, it is disassembled, and parts of it are in literally every room in my house. I'm rebuilding it so that it can be quickly disassembled and kind of folded up and stacked in the back mm -hmm. of a car. Because it was huge, I had to move it on a flatbed truck because it was just too big. Yeah, it's like eight feet tall and pretty heavy too. So, and and also a little fragile. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff on the inside. The inside is actually really it's almost like a studio apartment that's twenty two inches wide. <laughs> you know, it's kind of great. <laughs> I like being in these in tiny enclosed spaces. To be honest, there, that is an interesting similarity in your projects. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, uh, it's, it is something that uh, my therapist and I talk about with regularity. <laughs> it's like, why do you have to hide inside a tiny box in order to make your work? Well, uh, let's, <laughs> let's not look too closely at that, but let's look at that. I don't know. I like it. I think the mysteriousness, I love this idea that this can be some type of message from the beyond. Like, you're not interacting with me. I'm not interacting with you, but we are. I don't know if the person putting a worry through the slot is six years old or 76 years old or I, I don't know. I don't have a, like a peephole or anything like that. I don't want to know. It's very different from the poetry Fox in a way, because I'm, I can be much weirder inside the cabinet in what I write. It can be obtuse. It can be 
It can be from another place. I haven't done that performance enough to really have a real full sense of it. I haven't explored that a whole lot, but I'm hoping that once normal life resumes, there will be a lot more opportunities for me to get to schlep this cabinet around and sit in it and write for people. I love that idea. And I think there's really something to restricting the information that we are forced to sift through to really focus our minds. That is why I'm so interested in audio work and more specifically audio fiction, because I think when we remove the visual, it helps really focus in on the sound and then requires something different from the audience and also from the artist. It's like we're accessing something that is just at a different level, like at the level of ether or something like that, where we're accessing something that is sort of above us and connects us, but it's not so superficial as being able to just see what's happening. It's it's creating the visual because you don't have it. You're not being supplied with it. And so I think it's just a different access point. There's an oft quoted uh, line by the poet Jack Spicer where he says that a poet is a counterpunching radio. That's the sort of audio that you're talking about makes me think of. The the idea that a poet is um is like this device that signals that invisible and inaudible signals can be picked up on and made audible, you know? I mean you can't see radio waves, but suddenly there's music coming out of this little box. The counterpunching is that, you know, you're affecting the signal. You are taking this signal that's not made of words and somehow putting it out in a way that it is made of words. So, you know, I think a lot of poets are really attached to that, to that Jack Spicer idea because you're, you're not exclusively like channeling and you're not being this willful mastermind of intention, creating something from nothing uh, because you don't, you're always creating something from something. But it, it, I think it gives you that middle space where you do sort of hover with this awareness, but with also this lack of being where something just comes into you and you pass it along. I used to call that being like a fish swimming through water, that feeling of just moving through the experience and letting things unfold naturally. Are there other things that you would like to talk about before we wrap up? The fox and the cabinet are sort of really occupying my time right now. I've been working on some other some other little things. I've been altering flip clocks, uh, which I'm real excited about. So you you know those old clocks with the sort of it was before we got to sort of electronic digital clocks. They're these mechanical clocks with with little panels that flip each minute. Um, oh yeah, okay. Now I know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I've been I just like bought a bunch of them off of eBay and found a bunch of them in junk stores, and I've been gradually like whiting out all the all the numbers on them and putting text in there so so they're like these poems that change every every minute <laughs> and they're they're a lot of fun it's an interesting writing project to try to kind of come up with you know a lot of them you can write this three word poem with them basically where the hour the tens digit of the minute and the ones digit of the minute are these three separate columns. And so you can have like subject, verb, object, or adjective, adjective, noun, or something like that. And to write a whole bunch of combinations that all kind of work, but are constantly changing. It's a really fun writing project. And the results are really pretty wonderful too. I have one more question now. Yeah. As you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, you write 
in lots of different ways, right? But what draws you to performance writing? That's a great question. There's a long answer for that and a short answer. I'll see if I can gravitate toward the short answer. I think it's that for many years as a much younger person, I would be trying really hard to get everyone in my life to go to bed so that I could have a quiet house and stay up, you know, half the night under a lamp and work on writing. And it was this very solitary activity. I think a lot of writers are familiar with that. And a lot of writers are trying to like, I need to make space to write. I need to make space to write. You know, uh, dad is going into the studio. Don't knock (laughs) on the door for an hour and a half unless the house is burning down or you're fatally injured, you know, that type of thing. And I just realized uh, after a while that it was just not serving me very well to be isolating myself in order to make my work. And it certainly wasn't serving the world very well. You know, I was always trying to get out of interacting with other people so that I could do the thing that was the most important to me. It just didn't, it didn't make sense in a lot of ways, but especially psychologically for me. So I think for a long time before I was given the fox suit and the poetry fox happened, I was trying to figure out how to be, how writing could be interactive, how I could be writing for someone you know, just the idea of on-demand writing was there for me for probably 15 years, kicking around in my brain before I really figured out how to how to make that occur. It's just getting to interact with a reader is something that authors, I mean, you just don't get to do that in a substantial way. And I've built a performance that is only that. And I mean, the thing that I think is sacrificed is that these poems go out there and I don't, like, The Fox has written 25,000 plus poems, and I don't have any of them, you know, they're just, but they weren't there for this one person in that one moment, which just makes so much more sense to me at this point. I'm sure there will be more books. I have books under my name, but I'm not that interested in a Poetry Fox book. It kind of doesn't make any sense to me to do that. It is actually a performance and not an author making work. It's it's a it's a performance that occurs in time. And there's this waste byproduct of a poem that comes out of it. Thank you so much for this conversation. I love all of the work that you do. And I really appreciate it. It seems like you, it feels like a service to me, <laughs> like these bespoke poems, essentially, to help people make meaning, because I think that's really what they're looking for is some sort of sign from the universe. And then they interpret it however they will But just giving them that access point, it's just a gift. So thank you so much for your work. Thank you for asking me to talk. Thank you for your work. And thank you for just stating that so elegantly and eloquently. Yeah. I mean, in this moment where we're all kind of shifting into this shelter-in-place mode and we're not interacting with each other and then everybody's trying to figure out these awkward-ish ways of doing their performances online and interacting through, you know, some type of video link up. They're kind of strange. And it just underscores the fact that we're all pretty desperate to interact with each other and to take away some type of lasting meaning to be changed by our interactions with each other. And art has this great power to be able to transmit really meaningful stuff that stays with you permanently and changes who you are. You take it into yourself and and you're a different person from, 
you know, before you came into the theater to see the play or, or read that book, you know, it, it does change you forever. That's pretty beautiful. And I think that's what most people are really, really hungry for. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. For more information, please see the show notes and our website, artistsoapbox.org. We are on Patreon, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.